0: All right, guys, thanks for indulging me in that, man. I just needed to hug a few people. Amen? All right, y'all can say amen. Y'all know that? I didn't hug Ryan, he's upset about it. Amen, there we go, all right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. Uh, if not, words will be on the screen, but we're going to be in our uh, study through Romans. I missed you guys last week, I was on vacation last week, uh, but it's good to be back. Uh, we spent uh, two weeks in Romans chapter 1, and now we're going to spend one week in all of Romans chapter 2, so buckle up. we got a lot to do. Uh, I've only got 12 pages of notes, so hopefully we won't be here uh, till dinner dinnertime. Amen, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In chapter one, in chapter one, we saw that God's wrath was displayed not just in the future, but now in the present. And those who reject Him, and what they get His wrath is that they get exactly what they want. That God gives them over to themselves, and it leads us. It leads those people who did that, to spiral down into their own destruction. Now, Paul knows, as, as after he wrote chapter 1, he kind of knows what we're thinking. Right? Because that was really about the Gentiles, uh, to, to those other people out there, those non-religious people. And Paul knows that we would read chapter 1 and go, yeah, you tell them, Paul. Those guys stink. They're jacked up. They're broken. Those Gentiles, yeah, you tell them. And so Paul writes chapter two almost as if anticipating, not another thing, anticipating that reaction, as if to say, "Oh no, it's not just those irreligious people I'm talking to; it's the very religious people as well." So let's read chapter two and see what the Lord would teach us this morning. Paul writes the book, the letter to to the Romans, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and pins these words: "Therefore." You have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the, judge, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. The Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I... I love being a pastor, and I love so many things about being a pastor and, and, and all that comes with that. But there are some things that are very annoying about being a pastor. One of those things is when people act differently around you because you're a pastor. And so they have to pretend to be somebody else because, you know, you're a pastor. And so one time I was at B-dubs or BW3s or Buffalo Wild Wings, whatever you call it, I was at, I was at B-dubs. And with one of my cousins in Louisville, and we were watching a football game, and a bunch of his friends were with him, and, uh, and, and, you know, their team wasn't doing so great, and so, uh, and so their volume increased at the TV, you know what I'm talking about, um, uh, been drinking a little, little much, right, All right. and, and they were using some of them four dollar words, you know what I'm talking about, and, and, and just kind of getting, getting excited about the refs, and, and everything going wrong, and kind of getting loud, and rambunctious, and kind of acting a fool, and, and so, whatever. And so, I'm watching the game with them. And well, during halftime, you know, everybody's cooled down and they're getting another round. And, and we're talking and, and uh, talking to one of the guys I never met before and, and, and kind of getting to know him. And, and he asks the question So, what do you do? <sighs> <laughs> Funny you should ask, <laughs> right? And so, at that point, it was like, Well, I'm, I'm a youth pastor. Um, and you can immediately see the, the, his face turn um, uh, and go, oh, no, <laughs> uh, this is not good. Uh, and, and, and it gets awkward, right, for that moment. And, and what happened here and what always happens is he says, man, I'm so sorry uh, for all those $4 words I've been saying uh, and for all my friends acting a fool. Uh, and then, you know, I, we, don't, we don't normally act like this. I'm a really good guy. Right? Amen. Why why do people respond as if they are accountable to me? Right? Why do people feel the need to put on a face uh, or to present to be someone they're not because they're around a pastor or church people? And it's not just unchurched people who do this. It's not just the people at B-dubs drinking a little too much, using $4 words, but it's church people too, right? Like, it's us. When when we get around each other, we live all week one way, but when we're around the pastor, when we're around church people, put our Jesus hat on, and we talk a little different, we act a little different, we put on a little bit of a show, what is going on there? Why do we act like that? I think Romans chapter 2 has some of the answers for us. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, or in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The such things are, if you go back to chapter 1 at the end, he has a whole list of bad things. So the first question Romans 2 is seeking to answer is, who says that we're guilty? Who says we're guilty? Now, I want to start with the obvious and then move to the less obvious. Okay? Who says we're guilty? Well, first and foremost, God says we're guilty, according to the text. Paul says that the judgment of God rightly falls on us. Sometimes we have this attitude that no one can judge me for being me. Right. No one can judge me because they don't understand what I'm going through. They don't understand how hard my life is. No one can judge me because you know they've got their own issues. I've got mine. You can't judge me. But God doesn't have issues. God knows exactly what you're going through. God knows how hard your life is. And God is the only one who sees clearly and most importantly has actual perfect goodness and a standard of goodness uh, that is right. And so God is the only one who actually judges fairly and rightly and justly. God never grades on a curve. He never washes over mistakes. The judgment of God rightly, as Paul says, falls on us. We stand guilty before him. We don't have to go further than the Ten Commandments to see how easily and often we break the laws of God. We've lied and we've stolen. We've disobeyed our parents and we've lusted and on and on. So who says we're guilty? God, the unbiased judge, the righteous judge, the good judge says we're guilty. But that's not the most interesting thing about this text. We kind of get that. There is someone else that says you are guilty before God, and I think it might surprise you. Read it again. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You see, we are guilty by our own standards, is what Paul was saying. We're guilty by our own standards. You see, not only does God say we're guilty, we say we're guilty. Not only is God externally saying we're guilty, but we ourselves are say we're guilty. Paul is saying that we judge other people, we look down our nose on other people, we criticize other people for their actions, we call them immoral, we call them guilty, but we do the very same things. How, for, let me give you an example. How many of us maybe were critical or judgmental of people when riots were happening across the country and people were running into targets to run out with big TVs? Right, running into targets to steal everything that they could in the middle of a riot. Shake our head, judge them for stealing, and yet we ourselves have stolen. And maybe you've never walked out of the store with something you didn't pay for. Maybe you have. I have. I'll tell you that story later. But maybe you've clocked in to work a little earlier than you actually started working. Maybe you clocked out of work a little later than you actually stopped. Maybe you took a little nap on work or spent a little too much time on social media. Or maybe you've cheated or fudged a little bit on your taxes. Maybe there's been some other ways you've stolen. And we are guilty by the very thing we judge others for. The fact of the matter is we are critical of other people's sins while simultaneously being guilty of them ourselves. How many of us have judged someone for... Having an affair on on the spouse while simultaneously being addicted or looking at pornography. Parenting is one of the best or the worst, maybe how you look on it, uh, ways of exposing uh, this issue in us. Like all the time I'll go to my kids and I'll say, sweetie, you cannot speak that way to your sibling. You cannot uh, be that mean you cannot use those words you cannot be unkind to them Jesus is kind to you so we're kind to our brothers and sisters okay all right we don't hit all Right? we share because Jesus is kind to us we're kind to them or hey we need to have a better attitude right because of God's grace and kindness to us we need to have a joyful attitude in our life and I, and I discipline my kids and I teach them these things and then I turn around and go woman what are you doing not really, but, but we do things like that, right? Uh, we get onto our tids, kids, we teach our kids something, and then we turn around and we treat our spouse unkindly. We treat our friends unkindly. We snap. We get snappy. We get upset. We live ungrateful. We tell our kids to be grateful for the things they have, and then we live in ungratitude. We fail our own standards. He continues his argument in verse 12, and he says, For all who have sinned without the law. It's okay, so meaning they, they don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have the Bible. They don't know God's law. So for everyone who sins without the law, they will also perish without the law. And, and why is that? Why will people perish if they don't have the law? Because when Gentiles who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires. Right? By their very nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. You see, we all have a conscience. We all have the law of God written on our heart. It's why all people of all times everywhere have thought murder is wrong, have thought things are wrong. We get get together and we agree that these things, certain things are bad. We know in our heart what is right and wrong. And so Paul's argument is that all these people who have never heard about God don't have his law. They still follow it without knowing it. Imagine it like this. Imagine that every one of us had a little fairy that followed you around your whole life. And that little fairy had a notebook. And, and every time you were critical or judged uh, or thought something was wrong that someone else did, that little fairy wrote it down, all right? All right, this person thinks that you ought not, you know, you think that you should not steal. You shouldn't lie. You, wh- whatever. Whatever you thought was wrong throughout your whole life, that little fairy wrote all those things down. And at the end of your life, when you were judged, if you were only judged by that list that that fairy wrote down, those things, you would still be found guilty. Because we fail our own standards. We break our own law. Not only do we fall short of God's standards, we fall short of our own. And so who says we're guilty? Maybe you don't agree with God on very much, but you agree with God on this, that we rightly deserve judgment because we fail his and our own standards. But while this chapter is still about the bad news, Paul had to get, he's got to talk about the bad news before he talks about the good news. While this chapter is still about the bad news, there are some small flashes and reminders that the good news is coming. In verse four, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is going to lead you to repentance? And the riches of his kindness, man, Thanks be to God that he is rich in mercy to us. right, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us, that he does not leave us in our punishment, he does not leave us in our guilt, he does not leave us in our shame, he, he, he doesn't leave us to waller in it, a good word, waller. Amen. He doesn't leave us to waller in our shame, but he's rich in kindness and grace, and he lavishes grace and mercy upon us and forgiveness for those who place their faith in Christ. See, the message of the gospel is a little bit counterintuitive, right? It's a little bit uh, counterintuitive. It simultaneously says that you are so sinful that Christ had to die, but so loved that he was glad to. It says that you are, that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine, yet more loved and accepted in Christ than you could ever dare hope. Get that? can't get the good news before you have the bad news. You're so sinful he had to die, but so loved he was glad to. See, the kindness of God can only be understood when you understand the bad news of our guilt, and once you understand our guilt, you can see the vast kindness of God in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher, said it this way. He said, imagine a friend tells you that he has paid a bill for you. How should you respond? Well, you have no idea until you know the size of the bill, until you know how much he has paid. You don't know whether to shake his hand or bow down and kiss his feet. And unless you believe in hell and the judgment of God, you will never know how much Jesus loves you and how much he values. It's only when we know just how guilty we are and the punishment we deserve because of our guilt do we understand the best kindness of God. But the question the text wants to answer this morning, right, that's setting the stage for us. Now, the question this text wants to answer for us is how do we respond to this kindness? We're clearly guilty before God. Now, God's kindness has come to us, and how do we respond to his kindness? There are three ways in this text that shows we respond to the kindness of God. Three responses, and all three of these have very different outcomes. One. We can respond to the kindness of God by presuming his grace. By presuming his grace. Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This verse is like a wake-up call. This verse is like smelling salts meant to arouse us out of a slumber. You've probably heard the phrase before that being saved is not a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Following Jesus is not a get uh a, get, a, get, a, get, a, get hell out of free card. It is a, a, a whole way of life. It is a complete new life where we're changed from the inside out, receive grace, and we're never the same after. So you can't come to God, say a prayer, come to church, sign up to be a Christian, and say, okay, I did the thing, I signed up, I said the words, I've got my get out of hell free card, I'm good to go. You can't do that. The kindness of God and his patience are meant to lead to life change, not give you a free pass to heaven so that you can continue to live however you want, knowing that at the end of your life, you'll be safe from hell. Not the way it works. What might it look like for someone who is presuming or assuming the grace and kindness of God? Well, if you are looking back in your life, you're looking back at an emotional moment where you did a spiritual thing and you maybe gave your heart, quote, unquote, to Jesus. And now it has been 10, 20, 30 years, and there is no change in your life. You are absent from the fellowship of the body of Christ. Your life is not marked by faith. Is not marked by repentance. And you basically live like the world, but you say you're good because you believe in Jesus. That is presuming on his grace. That is assuming he's just going to be kind to you in the end no matter what you do. That is saying, I don't really care about the life Jesus says I should live. I don't really care about the values Jesus says I should have. I don't really care about the things Jesus says I should do. I really just don't want to go to hell. And Jesus is my way out but I don't really want him. I don't really want to spend time with him. I don't really want to live for him. I don't have time for all that. And honestly, man, that's a scary place to be. And sadly, it is a place that there are some of you in this room who are at. It is a place that some of us in this room have family members who are in that place or friends who are in that place. We have a really hard time kind of thinking about how to handle them, how to talk to them, what to do, because they say they believe. But every evidence in their life says the other, says contrary. They say they believe in Jesus, that they gave their heart to Jesus, but it doesn't seem like they actually care about Jesus all that much. To presume or assume that God is going to be kind to you is to live your life with no concern over your sin or how your life honors God or following Jesus at all. So the first way that we can respond to the kindness of God is is by presuming his grace. And the second way, we can respond to the kindness of God by living a hypocritical life. This whole chapter, in many ways, is exposing the hypocrisy of religious people. The first first few verses, and then verse 17 through 24, say this by saying that we judge others for doing the very same things we do. Right? We talked about that. It says that we are people who have the truth. We have the truth. We have the Bible. We are even teachers of the things of God, and yet we live contrary to what God says. But before I go further, I want to make something really put on the table, make it really clear. Every one of you in this room who is a faithful follower of Jesus is on some level also a hypocrite. And that's me too. And I'm a hypocrite. And so let's not pretend like there are some hypocrites and some people who got it together. I mean but we're all hypocrites. We all say one thing and do another. We all value one thing and go against our values. We all act one way here and act a different way somewhere else. I and mean, we're all hypocrites to different levels. But the reason we are here it's because we, we know we're hypocrites, because we know we're not perfect, because we know we don't have our act together, because we know we need grace, because we know we need forgiveness. We have a time of confession every week in our service because we know we've all dropped the ball, and, man, we just need a moment to thank God for his mercy and confess to him our failings, knowing that his mercies are new every morning. None of us live perfectly or consistently with what we say we believe. We act one way around church people and a different way around other people. Say we should love our enemies. But yet we get on social media and we slander and rip our political opponents to shreds. We say that our speech should be encouraging to build up. And yet, at work and our friends around us, we cuss like sailors. We say we condemn people for acting a certain way, and then in another context, we do the very same things that we condemn others for. This is why what we boast in matters. Where our boast is matters. That we are not people who boast in our own moral goodness. We are not people who boast in our ability to be good, to be faithful, to get it all together. We don't boast in how good of Christians we are. We boast in the cross and resurrection of Jesus and his grace and his work that delivers us alone. That's our boast, man. Don't look at me, look to him. I'm not the standard, he is the standard. I don't have it together, his mercies are more. We don't say, oh yeah, look at me. We, say, we don't say, look at me, I have it all together. We say, look to him who holds me together. So we can respond to the kindness of God. We can respond to his grace, living however we want, presuming on his kindness. And we can live hypocritically, which we, we kind of all do. And, and, and I say that to say the effect of that is gonna matter. And the third way we can respond to the kindness of God is through repentance. God's kindness, Paul says, is meant to lead us repentance. See, God has not shown you grace because you have it all together. He didn't show you grace because you were already good. He showed you grace for precisely the opposite, because we are guilty, broken, wretches, and desperate need for mercy, which he supplies. God's kindness, understand this, God's kindness, his grace, washes away all of our sins, past, present, and future, but it's not meant as a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is meant to break the chains of sin that enslave you so that you can live free in Christ, free from sin to enter into the joy of our Father. See, repentance simply means that we turn, right? Turn away from one thing, turn toward something else. So we are to turn away from this old life and turn toward our new life, to turn away from those things we've always known were wrong, were bad, and to turn away from those things that we call sin and turn toward Jesus. Repentance is not something that we do one time when we first come to Christ. Repentance is actually something that we do every day, sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes an hourly occurrence. We are to be repenting and turning away from our sin and toward to Christ. We should not see repentance. Hear me, I think this is important. We should not see repentance as something to be embarrassed about. Repentance is not something that we should be feeling ashamed of. Repentance is... Is a gift of God. For the, the ability to turn from my sin and to turn toward Him is a gift of grace. It is a part of the kindness of God. It is His grace and mercy that we can turn and be free. But His mercies are new every morning. It's a gift of God. And so, man, in His kindness, we should be gladly always repenting, always turning. Often From the same sin, repenting of the same one again and again and again and again for 50 years. It's a thorn in our side. Always repenting of it. We should rejoice in that gift of repentance because it is God's love toward you. It has given you the desire and the ability and the want to hate that thing that you also love and turn from. it. Don't be ashamed of that. We are a gathered people. Right now in this room. And the reason we're gathered is to remember again his grace. To remember again his love. That it might lead us to repentance. And we all need that reminder. If not, we will live continual lives of guilt and shame, feeling the weight of it. When we can be set free. Repentance doesn't mean God's wagging his finger at you. It is his gift of love to you. You see, the two things that mark a true believer in Christ, more than anything else, are one, that he has faith in Christ, and two, that there is continual repentance. Man, to be marked as a Christian does not mean you've got your acts together. It doesn't mean that you look the part and, or whatever. It means that you're, that you're always saying, man, I hate that I do this. I hate this sin in my life, and I want it gone. Man, that's the mark of a follower of Jesus. Not that you got your act together, but that you hate the things you do wrong and you want to fix them. And you're striving every day to do it. That's the mark of following Jesus. My faith is in Christ. My hope and my security is in him. And I'm turning from the things that he says I should turn from. One of my favorite things in life is to watch someone who has screwed up really bad. Or just royally messed up. And upon being convicted, has responded in repentance, has asked for forgiveness from the one they've wronged and received grace. I, I love, I mean, I don't want people to be mean to one another. Scarlet, love you, babe. I don't want people to be mean to one another. But when we are mean to one another, when we are unkind, uncharitable to one another, man, it is this beautiful thing when someone comes and says, man, I dropped the ball, I said things too quickly, I said things too harshly, I didn't understand what I was doing, or man, I just, whatever, whatever. Man, we forgive me, and then that Christian looks at them and says, "Man, I forgive you. I love you. Let's hug. Let's cry and work." Some of my deepest relationships in my life are with friends whom we have really seriously wronged one another over over the years. Have said hurtful things. Have said mean things. Have had quick tempers to one another, and yet there's been deep reconciliation. And I trust and love those brothers so much because we've walked through that together. Repentance is this beautiful thing. And it is this beautiful display of what God has done to us—that He's reconciled us to Himself. The kindness of God is in your life, so that you might throw away your old life and take up the beautiful life God is offering you. His kindness is not for you to presume upon; it's not for you to just to assume it's going to be there. It's also not meant for you to take and just live hypocr- in a hypocr- hypocritical. Thank you. Way. It's meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to change. So what is the outcome of these responses? This is where it's going to get interesting. God responds to our guilt with kindness and grace, and then we respond to God's kindness in one of three ways, either by presuming, believing hypocritically, or repenting. But what is the response to those things? Look at verse 6. What is the outcome of our response? Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. For those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. You might read this and say, wait a minute, I thought that Paul would say that we're saved by grace and not by works. Why is he saying we're going to be judged by our works? That seems a little confusing. What gives? Paul is showing us that our works or our lives reflect who we actually are. As Jesus would often talk about, and the Bible talks about everywhere, that a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears no fruit. So your life reveals which of these responses you have taken. So if you presume on the grace of God, and you just see it as a get-out-of-hell-free card, You're not obeying the truth, right? You're self-seeking. You're living this unrighteous life. There's no repentance in your life. For 30 years, you've said, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus at that youth camp a long time ago, but but you've never followed him since. And you think you're safe. You've presumed on his grace. The result of that will be wrath and fury because your works show who you really are. If we presume on his kindness, we will be found wanting. Too many people will find themselves shocked at the end that they didn't make it to heaven because they were sure that they said the right words when they walked that aisle or went to that camp. But hear me. Grace is free. Salvation is free. It is a gift of God. But unless you have a changed life from the inside out, that your life is not your own, but it's lived for God very imperfectly, very imperfectly, very hypocritically, live for God. But you love Jesus and want to serve him. And man, if that's not you, it's because your heart has not been made new. And you don't belong to him. If you belong to Jesus, there will be repentance. Not perfection, but repentance. Lifelong repentance. Own your guilt. Confess it and receive mercy and run after Jesus. It's not that you've got to prove something to him. It's not that you've got to do it right. It's that it changes us. Two, if you respond to Jesus with a hypocritical life, if people look at you and say, Why would you do this? I thought you were a Christian. Why would you say that? I thought you were a Christian. If people are shocked to find out that you are a Christian by the way you live, then what happens? Verse 23 says, you boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of of God is blasphemed among among the Gentiles because of you. Here's the problem with our hypocrisy, that all of us partake in. When we live as hypocrites, the world... Mocks God. So many people reject Jesus because they see Christians not practicing what they preach. They see how we live and they say, Well, why would I want to become a Christian? It doesn't seem to actually matter to them, it doesn't seem to change them in any way, so why should I want it? I think it was Gandhi who said that he liked Jesus and he liked the idea of Christianity. But he couldn't find any Christians that he liked very much or who acted like Jesus. When the world knows you're a Christian, are they drawn near or pushed away from Jesus by the way you live your life? Or do they use you as an excuse to mock God and reject Jesus? Well, God forgives our hypocrisy and and praise God that he does because I need a lot of that. Well, God forgives our hypocrisy. The world won't. They use it as an excuse to reject the Lord and mock Him. Finally, when we respond to God's kindness with repentance, what happens? The, te- the, the language used in this text is that eternal life, glory, honor, peace. These are the words used here. But when you can own your guilt, when you can confess it freely, Jesus and when you are forgiven and made new God never says to you you need to be more sorry he doesn't come to you and say when we're living in repentance he doesn't say man you need to be more sorry. you need to repent better you need to change and turn more he doesn't say that I want you to notice something very important in this text what came first our repentance or the kindness of God which one came first wasn't repentance. No, no. God's kindness always comes first. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And that's so important. That's so important. Because if it was the other way around, then our repentance and our works and our doing would be earning the kindness of God. Would be trying to merit the kindness of God. And we'd never know if we had it. It's the reason some, some of you believe this functionally. And it's the reason you live your lives in guilt and shame and you feel beat down and you feel distant from God because you think that you've got to, to live and, and to repent well enough and be faithful enough and read your Bible enough. And if you do these things enough, then you'll get the kindness of God. And it just destroys you. And you live in shame because you've missed the point that his kindness always comes first. It is the kindness of God that leads to life change. It is the kindness and mercy and grace of God that leads you to repentance, not the other way around. That's so important. Man, see, religion, earning God's love by obeying his commands, by being a good person, here's what, here's what Paul's argument is at the whole end of the text. Like, he's Paul's basically saying, listen, Religion, works-based salvation is a good thing if and only if you can keep all the law perfectly. Man, if you can follow the whole thing perfectly your whole life, then, man, then you can boast in it. Then God will accept you for it. But if you can't, if if you can't do that, then your only hope is grace. And stop trusting your ability to be good. One theologian said, religion is often just a thin veneer papered over a heart that is still every bit as sinful as everyone else's. And that religion by itself is powerless to change our hearts. It might change our behavior, but nothing deeper. Religion and works will send you to hell, but the kindness of God and his forgiveness and repentance again and again will lead to heart change and lead to eternal life. It is the kindness of God that leads us to change. You see, we might all be hypocrites at times, but let's be hypocrites who are quick to thank God for his mercy and quick to repent. Years ago, Mark Dever, a pastor now in D.C., was preparing to leave England uh, doing doctoral work, and he was moving back to the United States. uh, When he met a relative that he'd never met before, and he was sitting down for coffee with her, and Uh, They were chatting, and and she asked him, well, what are you getting ready to do? What are you about to do as you're moving? And he told her, well, I'm going to go be a Baptist preacher in Washington, D.C. And she said, oh. And her eyes dropped down, and she began to stir her coffee, obviously uncomfortable with where the conversation had gone. And she says, you know, I don't have much use for church. And he waited a moment, and Mark said, would you mind if I ask Why? Why don't you have much use for church? She said, Well, they're just a pit of vipers. They're all gossips and backbiters and hypocrites. Just a pit of vipers. And so Mark asked her, He said, What do you think about the outside world? Do you think the world's any better? She said, Well, I guess not. I guess they're a pit of vipers too, but at least they know it. At least the world knows they're a pit of vipers. Mark waited a moment and he observed. He says, you know, you might be surprised at how much I agree with you. You're right about the world. It is a pit of vipers. And you're right about the church. We're a pit of vipers and hypocrites too. I know that the church is a pit of vipers. But I think where I would disagree that I don't think that the world actually realizes that. I don't think the world realizes there are a pit of vipers. But Christians do. Now, there are churches that don't realize that. There are churches that don't realize that they're a pit of vipers, and I wouldn't touch those with a 10-foot pole. But any church I go to will know that it's a pit of vipers because that's why we're there, because we know we're bad. We know we need grace. And you know what? There's always room for one more to come slither on in. Our witness to the world should not be Christians have the moral high ground. It should be God is good. We're not. He's merciful. I'm not the model of perfection. I'm not a Christian because I got it all together. I'm a Christian because I'm precisely the opposite, because I don't, because I fail every day. And man, where the joy lies, that we get to all get together in this room and link arms, broken people who've received mercy on mercy upon mercy. Kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So sinful that Christ had to die. But so loved that he was glad to. That goes for you too. There may be some of you in this room right now and you are realizing for the first time that you are guilty before God. And that guilt is real. And I want you to know that you can come to Christ. And I want you to know that you do not have to clean your life up. Man, you do not got to straighten everything out. You don't got to go home and patch things up first. You don't need to clean up, get your acts together, and then come in. Man, no. That's exactly what the, the enemy wants you to believe. And Jesus loved to hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors, and he loved to hang out at the bars with people throwing $4 words. And Jesus wants you broken, shattered, and mess and everything. He doesn't want you to clean up. He wants to clean you up can come and he'll make you whole. There are some of you in this room right now, and you have lived a life of assuming the grace of God. Presuming on his grace. You've thought it was a get out of hell free card, and you've lived in a hypocr- in, as a hypocrite. And come repent. And re- repent before God. You can be honest with him. You will find grace. Upon and there are some of you in this room, man, you need to repent, but not just before God. You need to repent before somewhere else. Before to someone else. Because there are there is some friction, there is some tension, there is something going on with you and someone else, maybe someone in this room. And I know that it is so hard to go to someone and and apologize and make amends and make things right, but man, it should not be hard for fellow followers of Jesus to do that. It should not be hard for followers of Jesus to go. And to, to own our sin, to own our grievances, and be met with grace and forgiveness and rest, rest, restoration. And sometimes we need to go and repent to someone else because of the way we wronged him. And you won't be free until you do it. I want you to weigh at you. Because the kindness of God will be at you and at you and at you. Until you turn to him. And find life. Let's pray. Father, this morning. Lord, it's a hard thing to, to talk about this text. It's a hard thing to talk about how bad we are and how hypocritical we are. It's a hard thing to own. It's a hard thing to say I was wrong. It's a hard thing to, to judge, to, to realize that we judge other people for doing the things we ourselves do. But God, it is your kindness and grace that opens our hearts to receive that. And and to and to receive that news, not as a beat down with a club, not as man, you suck, be better, but instead as we can we can own that and receive the kindness of God, repent and move on to greener pastures. So, God, would you give us the kind of grace we need this morning to own our faults, to own our guilt, to own our sin, confess before you and confess before any person we need to. To make it right. Help us, Father, to live as people who are constantly repenting. And we don't see repentance as some shameful thing that we've got to do. But God, as the gift you've given that we man, it's awesome that we get to we get a chance to turn from our mistakes and receive and be met with grace and mercy and love again and again and again and again for forever. God, we know that you just want to make us new, but it's so hard to own our faults because we are afraid. We're afraid that if you really know us, and if people really know us, or if we own our faults before them, that we'll be met with judgment, condemnation, uh, guilt, and shame. But instead, God, remind us this morning that you meet us with grace. You don't hold it over our heads. You don't beat us down with it. And Father, help us to be people who extend the kind of grace to one another. We don't beat, beat each other over the head with it. We don't hold it against them. We restore each other. And our relationships become deeper because of it. Give us that sort of grace this morning, Father. If you're here this morning and you need to pray, you need to talk, you need to pray, you need to confess, you need to follow Jesus for the first time, and I'm going to be up here, would you as we sing come down here, let me pray with you. Let me talk with you, let me give you a hug. There's going to be some guys on the side that would love to do that as well with you. And if you need to repent, if you need to own, if you need to reconcile with someone in this room, while we sing, just go find them, just go hug them and say, I'm sorry. Father, give us the grace to be the people of God who are right with you and right with each other because we always respond to your kindness by repentance. In Christ's name we pray, all these people said.